Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Julianne Holt-Lundstad studies one particular aspect of health, and it's something that we often understand only in slow motion, or sometimes not at all. So how can researchers track this feature of our well-being? Well, they've got to follow us carefully and over time. Years, decades often. <laughs> Holt Lundstad is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. The magnitude of this effect exceeds that of um, other factors such as obesity, physical inactivity, and air pollution. So, I mean, really what this suggests is that we need to take this just as seriously for our health. Indeed, studies have found that the adverse effects of her particular area of focus, they amount to smoking 15 cigarettes a day or routinely drinking excessive amounts of alcohol. So we looked at 70 studies worldwide, including data from over 3.4 million participants. And what we found was that um, loneliness increases earlier death by 26%. Loneliness, you could argue, is little more than a feeling. But, Holt-Lundstad says, that argument is wrong. It is a feeling, but it's a lot more than that. So, in essence, what research suggests is that loneliness creates a, a state similar to threat. So, of course, throughout human history, it's been adaptive to be part of a group. And so when we lack proximity to others, particularly trusted others, that this can heighten this sense of, of threat and alert, which um, in turn can uh, signal various physiological responses in our body. So similar to fight or flight response, which then can trigger cardiovascular, neuroendocrine, and immune responses. And so for instance, um, inflammatory responses that may occur can uh, put individuals at risk for a variety of, of chronic illnesses, including even greater susceptibility to viruses. And you can see where this is going. Nearly a year after the country locked down, nearly a year after nursing homes started restricting who could visit, if anyone could visit, nearly a year after schools closed their doors and many workplaces sent folks home, there's a question that might sometimes occur to you. What is the toll of loneliness? Turns out it's higher than we think. Certainly in medical and healthcare, there is a lot of attention to behavioral kinds of lifestyle factors. And in essence, our social well-being um, is, and is just as important, but has been underappreciated uh, in terms of the relative data that we have. And in fact, we also have evidence of some of the pathways um, by which this occurs. Um, so understanding how it is that this goes from feeling lonely to um, being at greater risk for earlier death. And who suffers the most from loneliness? Well, that's a tough question, and lots of research is being done. But the group that's most adversely affected may not be who we think. Younger adults seem to have the greatest prevalence of loneliness. Um, and we were starting to see that even before the pandemic. And, and this is true during the pandemic. 
That tendency of young adults to feel particularly lonely, it was one of the findings of a massive project called the BBC Loneliness Experiment, which had more than 46,000 participants from more than 200 countries. And loneliness, the researchers said, actually tended to get less severe as adults got older. Round about 25% of young adults will say they're lonely. And that goes down with age until you get to the 75-year-old, 75-pluses, who'll give you an answer of around 3 or 5%. Christina Victor is a researcher who helped lead the study. So the BBC survey, I think, reinforced the findings from our Office of National Statistics, so that's our government survey agency, indicating that perhaps loneliness was potentially a much bigger problem amongst young adults than it was against older adults. So that, I think, was very surprising to a lot of people who in the UK have constructed loneliness as a problem of old age. You know, it's almost like biological aging. If As you grow older, you'll grow more lonely. But that image of loneliness as an inextricable part of aging, it turned out to be off base, says Victor, who's a professor of gerontology and public health and the vice dean of research in the College of Health and Life Sciences at Brunel University in London. The impact of the pandemic on older adults, though, those who have been considered higher risk, they may have been less likely to see family members and friends over the past year, that is still unclear. Julianne Holt-Lundstad from Brigham Young notes that the image that many of us have of grandparents firing up Zoom to see the grandkids during the pandemic, that's not exactly the whole picture. One of my own studies during the early lockdown among uh, community-dwelling older adults in the San Francisco area, we found that roughly a quarter of older adults didn't have access to the Internet And this wasn't a rural area. This was San Francisco. (laughs) Um, And and then we also found that um, approximately three quarters of older adults were not using any kind of video chat. She says the way we get information about loneliness, it can skew the results. We were able to discover that because we did a telephone-based survey. And most other studies use online surveys. And so they may be representing more older adults who are using the internet and using these tools. And so we have to be really careful about the kinds of generalizations we make based on how the study is being done. As people have separated from each other over the last year, loneliness researchers have watched and tried to figure out how massive the effects of this separation will be. The physical effects of loneliness are tremendous, and no one quite understands the lasting medical implications of what we're witnessing. Of course, this is unlike anything at least I've ever experienced in my lifetime. Um, Sure. And so there's, you know, of course, the concern of what potential detrimental effects may be happening on a population level. But of course, there's also great curiosity And in particular, what kind of factors are associated with resilience? Because those are the kinds of things that will also help us develop better solutions for those who may be at greatest risk. You know, I know that um, we've seen in some places um, clusters of suicide amongst younger adults. We've seen that in Clark County where Las Vegas is. 
there's been a big uptick in young people who are reporting that they have suicidal thoughts um, like over a year ago. Um, how do you balance this problem of, you know, in a lot of places, schools are closed because they're trying to stop the spread of coronavirus. But in in the closure itself, you create this other kind of you know, problem, which is a, a real mental health problem. Right. And I think that's the challenge that we're all facing right now. And and I think also why there has also been a lot of um, resistance to some of the recommendations uh, and research suggests that, that, you know, we crave human contact. We're, we're biologically um, a social species. And so, these both can influence our health. And so one of the things that I've tried to be really clear about in my communication is that um, we don't want to trade one risk for another and that we really need to find ways to maintain social contacts and closeness in a way that also doesn't put us at risk for the virus. And that's challenging, of course, but there are some ways uh, to yeah, do that. Yeah, I was going to ask like, what that means for a high schooler or, you know, somebody who is 16 and, and having a tough time. Yeah. And, and so that's where, you know, I, I uh, of course, I see people who are, um, you know, connecting more digitally than ever. Sure. But there are ways that we've seen that people can connect to others in person. And, and of course, um, you know, the first comes with, you know, nurturing the relationships within your own household. And so if you are living with others, um, to spend quality time with those others. Um, because, of course, we know that it's high quality kinds of, of relationships that are protective, but negativity in relationships can actually put people at risk. And trigger those same threat responses, right? Um, and mm. so it's really, you know, nurturing those positive relationships. So, but regardless of whether you have others in your household or not, there are ways to potentially connect with people outside your household. Um, and so if it's neighbors, it can be from, you know, across the street or across a balcony. Um, so, you know, as far as teenagers go, um, I have two teenagers of my own. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, one way that my my teenage son has been able to remain connected to his friends, and, and of course this is perhaps unique to my area and may not be readily available to others, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm in Utah, and so um, he can go skiing with his friends. And, and it's, mm. you know, it's outside. They're all wearing masks. Um, gloves, <laughs> goggles, um, right, right. and, and you know, it's hard to get too close to someone on skis. <laughs> um, right, right, right. And so it's something that they can do together that, you know, is outside and, and safe and, and fun. And, and that's a way that he's been able to connect with his friends. And so, you know, it might take a little creativity, but there are ways that we can still maintain these these relationships with with friends and and families and neighbors and um and the variety of kinds of relationships that we need to continue to to nurture in our lives 
Christina Victor, um, let me bring you back in here and just ask a little bit more about the BBC loneliness experiment. Um, We talked about that finding that young adults were considerably lonelier than older adults. I wonder what surprised you personally the most? Um, Well, one was that although the BBC loneliness survey is not a representative sample, but it certainly reinforced the findings from some national surveys in the UK that the highest levels of loneliness were amongst young adults. So in the BBC survey, it was 16 to 24-year-olds. In our national surveys, it tends to be about 18 to 24-year-olds. So that was the first thing, I think, that was quite important. And the other thing was that in the BBC survey, we asked people who, and we could only ask this to the older adults, We asked them, had they been lonely at different points in their uh, life? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And something like about 85% said yes. And then when we asked them which time was the loneliness most problematic, and around about the largest group said when they were young adults. So I think two things are are surprising there. The first thing is that a lot of the work we've done in the UK around loneliness interventions assumes that when people experience loneliness in old age, they're naive to the emotion that they've never had it before. Whereas I think the BBC survey demonstrates that most older adults have had loneliness before, so it's not a new thing for them. And for a lot of them, they've developed coping strategies. And I think where we've missed a trick, perhaps, in thinking about interventions is that we haven't talked to the, if you like, experts by experience. We've, we've just thought, well, you know, this would be a good idea. Instead of asking right. people who've experienced loneliness, how did you cope with that? What helped you? And then build our interventions around that. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. We're going to be right back to talk more about the science of loneliness, what the research tells us about its effect on us, and how things are changing right now during the pandemic. On our website, we're going to have more about the BBC loneliness experiment, plus work showing that loneliness has physical effects more pronounced than obesity. That's all at innovationhub.org. We're coming to you from GBH Radio and PRX. Back in a minute. I'm Mr. Lonely Wish I had someone to call on the phone. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We've been talking about what kind of medical toll there will be from people being apart for often almost a year. Scholars have found that the effect of loneliness equals or outstrips a variety of physical ills, including being a heavy drinker and a heavy smoker. I'm joined again by Julianne Holt-Lenstad. She's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. And Christina Victor is a professor of gerontology and public health at Brunel University in London. Um, Christina, I want to pick back up with you where we kind of left off. You had talked about how Younger people, the research shows, are actually often much more vulnerable to loneliness than people think, and more vulnerable than older adults often, too. How have you watched and just analyzed uh, what's happened over the past year? Of course, people being told to be apart. Um, 
when you sort of think about the impact here of loneliness? Yeah. So obviously I'm most interested in older people. I, I try to be interested in young people, but I, and I am insofar as they'll grow old. But <laughs> I guess from a UK context, I think one of the things that's perhaps surprised many social commentators is in fact the resilience of older people. Perhaps because they've mm. got a, a lifetime of experience. Mm -hmm. So I think everybody in the UK, most, most commentators, probably a lot of public health agencies were expecting loneliness amongst older people to go up, whereas it's been remarkably stable. And I think older people have shown great resilience and our communities as well have shown a lot of support. So, you know, in the UK, we've had people going to the pharmacists and collecting medications and taking them round to people who can't leave. And I, I've been walking somebody's dog for them because they can't come out to, to, to walk the dog. And I think when we're thinking about loneliness, we talk a lot, and, I, and obviously meaningful relationships with your family are really important. But I think we shouldn't underestimate the importance and value of the you know, micro interactions or small interactions with people that okay. you have. So, for example, taking the medication round for somebody, it shows we care. It shows we're keeping an eye on them in as far as we can in these strange circumstances in which mm -hmm. we find ourselves. So I think sometimes we think perhaps the answer to loneliness is some grand intervention, but in many ways, perhaps it's though stimulating and uh, validating those small acts of kindness. Um, Julianne, do you think there will be, when we look back in five years and 10 years and 20 years and, you know, people get together all this research, which of course they will do, do you think that there will be health implications from the loneliness that has been experienced during the pandemic? So um, the long-term effects all are going to be influenced on what kinds of steps are taken to mitigate their effects. And so if people are indeed quite resilient, we're not going to see as much in terms of widespread public health effects. However, um, just given the the existing prevalence rates, even if, uh, you know, assuming that the prevalence rates didn't change at all, um, there's significant effects. But what I am particularly concerned about is that some of our societal responses to this may have long-term consequences and in ways that we may not be readily aware of. And that is how the shift that we have made in order to accommodate greater social distancing may become more permanent, um, whether that is changes in, in infrastructure, um, the way we design our public spaces, um, from restaurants to waiting rooms to workplaces, um, greater remote working, greater remote um, kinds of, of interactions widespread, um, that these kinds of systematic changes may have very broad and lasting kinds of effects. And so I, I just have concerns that perhaps some of these reactions to the current situation may have much longer term effects beyond the current situation. Christina, do you want to weigh in on that? I wonder if you see yourself 
potential problems that other people are maybe not seeing. Yeah, well, I think one of the the problems that the um, future loneliness researchers are going to have is undoubtedly there will be some people who will experience negative health outcomes post-COVID who were lonely. But I think one of the issues is going to be can we be confident that the outcome, say, higher cardiovascular disease mortality or you know, greater amounts of depression are the result of loneliness right, or right. are they simply because certainly in the UK, in the first pandemic, our NHS stopped dealing with anything that wasn't COVID. And so you know, we may well see an increase in strokes and heart disease, but we need to be quite careful before we attribute that to loneliness. But I, but I see I also, in that first wave, the NHS was just overwhelmed. Okay, got it. Yeah, well, not overwhelmed. We actually, we were dealing with the unknown. So mm, okay. because nobody really knew what COVID was, how to treat it, how to care for it, basically the NHS stopped doing um, a whole pile of routine procedures and screening gotcha. and various other things. Whereas this time around, rightly or wrongly, they're trying to carry on with as much... Um, non-COVID work as they can. I wonder from both of you, and Julianne, I'll I'll start with you. Um, When you think about loneliness in the context of this pandemic, where I think it's just something that's really touched so many people's lives, whether we're talking them or a relative or a friend, um, is there anything, you know, any specific stories that you think of from your own research or the work you do or even your own life that sort of reflects a little bit what you are seeing during the pandemic? Well, there's one example that I can think of that I think ties in with some of the research. And and that was early on during the pandemic, one of my neighbors sent out a group text. It, it, it was me and, and various others and and asked um, if anyone needed anything from the store. She was going to the store. And, and keep in mind that this was at the time when many of the shelves were empty and it, yeah, there were yeah. items that were very difficult to find. And so she sent out this text and just said, you know, I'm happy to just, you know, drop it off at your porch. Um, uh, just let me know whatever you might need. And um, what was interesting about that is that I didn't I didn't take her up on it. I didn't ask her to get me anything. However, it was so reassuring to know that if I did need something, I had someone I could count on. And this really ties into some of the research on perceived social support, which we've shown in laboratory studies that and, and other types of studies as well, but that even when you're not in the direct presence of others, that the perceptions of simply the availability of support, mm-hmm. that you have someone you can count on, is enough to buffer those um, effects of stress. And and we've even shown in the laboratory the physiological um, effects of stress. And so I give this example because it's something that is so simple that we can do, even if we're not in the presence of other people, that can potentially help buffer the the, the kinds of, of stress that many may be experiencing right now. Hmm. And Christina, anything 
Yeah, uh, I, I yeah. think I'll, I'll offer a, a different scale of example. Okay. Okay. So in the first wave of the pandemic, the Minister of Health asked for people to volunteer to help the NHS. And three quarters of a million people volunteered. So that's, I think, one of the things the pandemic has demonstrated for us is the willingness of members of our community to step forward and help their local community, their hospital, or mm. we treasure the National Health Service in the UK and um, came forward to help. And my own, I work in the College of Health, Medicine and Life Sciences, and I work with a lot of uh, clinically qualified people, but who are in academic posts. And they replicated that society-wide uh, response by immediately going into the NHS, going back to the NHS to help combat COVID. So I think for me, it, COVID uh, has reminded of us that the majority of our population are supportive of their community and social institutions and given an opportunity will come forward and volunteer. And maybe in the last few years, maybe we haven't felt able to to step forward and do that. And if there's a legacy of COVID, it will be that we can all make a difference to our local communities in all sorts of various ways. Maybe COVID will give us the permission to be a bit more, um, I was going to say from a UK context, a bit more American about it, about, you know, go getting. And, you know, we Brits are a naturally resident kind of bunch of people. Um, and maybe in the UK, it's, it's reminded us of what communities can do when we give them permission. Christina Victor is Professor of Gerontology and Public Health. She's the Vice Dean of Research in the College of Health and Life Sciences at Brunel University in London. And Julianne Holt-Lundstad is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. If you want to tell us what you've seen in terms of either loneliness or outreach in your community during the pandemic, you can find us on Facebook. We're also on Twitter. We're at iHubRadio on Twitter. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Hannah Kiros. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. <laughs>